thankful and honored for the opportunity to come and speak tonight. Uh, uh, as Brother Matt said, I've known him and his family for a long time. Actually, his grandparents are church members, uh, or his late grandfather and his grandmother are church members of mine that uh, uh, Miss Rita is just invaluable to us. She's great, uh, one of our great church members and one of our great workers. And so I respect um, Brother Matt and his family. His dad is one of my mentors who, if I have a question, he's one of the guys I have on speed dial and uh, we talk quite often. So his family means uh, a lot to me. So that means you mean a lot to me because I know that he does a good job here pastoring. Uh, that being said, we're speaking on the danger tonight of uh, a new revelation. Uh, now, I had a, a lot of notes uh, uh, to begin this discussion and this topic, but I had to scrap them all, and we're just going to have to make an assumption. And the assumption is, based on me knowing your, your pastor and the reputation of your church, we're going to have to make an assumption to get through the material tonight. Uh, and this is the assumption. I'm going to assume that we agree that the scriptures, old and new, are the word of God as originally written, and they are our only rule for faith and practice. Would we all agree on that point? Okay, good. Because if not, I'd have to go off into something else. But we're going to have to agree on that, right? That, that as uh, conservative in our baptistic circles, uh, that we hold that the scripture is our only and the sole source of our faith and practice as we live our life. So you didn't ruin my talk on that one. So we agreed on that. So then the question becomes this. That being said, we hold to that belief. Does God reveal himself today outside of scripture? Is there another way that he reveals himself in some other unique way or ways? Okay, we agree that the Bible is a sole source, but are there other sources? Are there other ways that God communicates to us today? Now, I'm not speaking of general revelation. That would be you woke up this morning and you saw the creation, uh, or you looked at uh, uh, yourself in the mirror and you knew that you're a creation of God, and God generally reveals himself through nature, through his creation. That's not what we're speaking about. God reveals himself that way every day. We're talking about specific revelation. God told me fill in the blank this morning. Does that happen? Does God reveal himself today to men or to a man like he did Moses and Abraham and Elijah, so on and so forth? Brother Matt, I'm going to tell you to eat a cheeseburger today or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you to go move to this part of the country and God specifically tells us those things. Now, the reason that topic maintains such momentum even though we have the completed source of the Bible, and even though the Bible is our sole source for faith and practice, the reason this topic of what is God's will for my life, the reason that it, um, uh, that it keeps such momentum is that is what people will ask. In fact, in pastoring, of all the years that I've done this, an associate pastor in youth work and now pastoring, that's probably the question that I've gotten the most over the years. Brother Joey, I'm just trying to uh, find out. I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. Now, if we ask that question and we believe that God's will for our life is some mysterious hidden treasure 
And in order to know God's will, I must obtain certain abilities or acquire some sort of special insight or mode of communication, then you will probably believe in special revelation. Because you're wanting the answer to that specific question. What is God's will for my life? That's why people eat up these books of how to communicate with God today. That's why they're on New York Times bestsellers. And people buy them and, 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 and consume them by the droves because they're trying to figure out what is God's will for my life. But you know, the answer to that question is probably the simplest, it's probably the simplest question with the simplest answer that you will get. It is so simple. That answer though, if you were to come to ask me, Brother Joey, what is God's will for my life? I can tell you that answer. And that answer also answers the question, is there new revelation today? Does God reveal himself specifically and specially to me outside of the Bible? So we're going to answer that question at the end. I know God's will for your life, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And so when we answer that question, it's also going to answer the question, does God reveal himself outside of the Bible? So let's begin working our way through this problem. I want to make one note here as we go through. We need to examine the method of a false prophet people who perpetrate this messaging of a new revelation. If uh, you are familiar, you may not be familiar with um, uh, the governmental system or belief of Marxism. Uh, it's a form of socialism, I guess you could say. In Marxism, you can read about something called the theory of crisis. You may have heard of the theory of crisis in Marxism. The theory of crisis says this, just drum it down to this, in the belief of uh, Marxism. Uh, the theory of crisis in Marxism says, first of all, you have to create a crisis. So in Marxist government, they're going to create a crisis. Then they're going to appoint blame or an enemy for the problem that they have created. So they're going to create a problem, and then they're going to say, it's you. This guy over here did that, see? And he, he is really your enemy. And then guess who has the solution? The people who created the crisis in the first place. And then they will offer you the solution. They will give you the, uh, in that Marxist-type government, there's always going to be this hero that's going to rise to solve your problem. Just give me all your stuff and I'll solve your problem because everybody else is the enemy. Did you know a false prophet operates by the same mode? Did you know that? You can read about it in 2 Peter chapter 2, but here's what a false prophet does. A false prophet will create a crisis. They will create a problem. You can't really know God's will with just using the Bible. See the problem? Well, what's God's will for your life? Well, it doesn't specifically tell you in the Bible, so we have a problem. Well, that's how a false prophet operates. Then they appoint blame. See, the reason that you don't know God's will for your life is you go to those old conservative churches, those boring snooze fests who just read you the Bible all the time. I have something much more exciting and an emotional frenzy that you can get all whipped up, and you can, in this emotional frenzy, find the will of God in your life. So they appoint blame. And then what do you think the false prophet does? Who has the answer? Well, I do. I can tell you the answer. I have the solution. And you know, they always use personal anecdotes or stories or these one-off little uh, sermon illustrations about what happened to them. And so really, whether it's in a governmental system or a false prophet in churches today, uh, the scheming and lying all works the same. But as we continue through this, let me make one note to you 
that I want you to remember. Um, if you don't, if you forget everything else, uh, 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 forget everything else tonight. Remember this: the Bible is an open book. There is no secrets, and there are no codes. There are no hidden keys. If you figure out all the code, you can have a closer relationship to God. Does not exist in the Bible. It is open. In the Bible, the crisis is clear. All men are appointed once to die. The blame is clear. It is man. We did this. The solution is clear. It is Jesus Christ. The false prophet does not like that message because there's nothing in it for him. And as it would be that God would all men come to be saved, so God's will for the lost man is to be saved, God also, if I'm assuming this audience here tonight is saved, God also is very clear about the will for your life. It is not hidden. It is in the Bible. Any other method, any other hidden way, any other communication, any other language that sets the Bible aside, that a man comes in and uh, is going to give you the solution, some, give you some kind of new revelation, it is dangerous and is the prof false prophet handbook. You run like they have the black plague. Once they, once you see their little languages that we'll look at, how they word and phrase things, you get away from them very quickly. New Revelation does not reveal anything. In itself, the title it is not possible because it actually hides the will of God because it sets aside the Holy Scripture. And when you set that aside, you certainly will never know the will of God by going out into a cow pasture and staring at a tree for 10 hours a day, waiting for God to speak to you in some form or fashion. Now, the reason that this landed on my pulpit, I guess you could say, is year before last at teen camp, at church camp, um, the guys came back, some of the staff came back, and they said, well, next year's speaker is this person. And they told me who that speaker was, and I said, fellas, I don't know. You know, we, we operate in very small circles. And uh, me, Brother Matt and I were just talking, the people we trust is even a smaller circle. And I said, I don't know. I think y'all have made a big mistake on this one. Oh, no, we've known him for years. I said, I'm telling you, uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. And I said, I don't, I don't think I'm going to let the kids go to church camp. Well, the staff, they, you know, disagreed with me. And if they were here, I'd say, I told you so. And I did after it was over. But I said, okay, but I want to see his sermon outlines. And any pastor has ever asked that worth his, uh, worth his weight and salt, no problem. You know, see my sermon outlines, here they are. I'll, I'll give them to you before I go. I couldn't ever get them. And I was telling these guys, this is a red flag, I'm telling you. And finally, we got some sermon outlines. And they said, well, here they are about a week before camp. Here they are, Sam. Like I told, I told him, I said, "Look, God, this is not his sermon outline. Um, we know sermon outlines. This is not one of them." And so the short version of that story is: this man went and preached at a teen camp, and he took his sermon straight out of a book called "Whisper" by Mark Batterson. I'm telling you that so you won't go by. You know, having to teach on this is like eating ruined tuna fish and then trying to explain what it tastes like. I've read through this book three or four or five times because I spoke on this topic. And uh, last time, Christy was doing some proofreading for me, and I'm like, I'm getting mad again. 
just having to go, it just, it just infuriates me. I just turn red. Uh, not because uh, there, there's a guy who believes, people, like Matt said, people believe whatever they believe, but what makes me uh, mad is people consume this stuff. And I'm not, let, let's, let's forget all the different associations. I'm talking about in our association, in our circle of churches. And so the pastors who are attending this camp had a meeting by day three and had to fire the speaker and could not finish the week. It was so bad. I was getting phone calls and we were back and forth and a couple preachers, even pastors, even drove to Heber Springs and set in and they made the decision. And so when they had this meeting uh, with this, this speaker, he summed up his defense by, well, that wasn't what I meant. Well, that's what you said. And then later, a text went out, he sent out trying to defend himself that said, well, some things Baptists just don't understand. And that's when I really about got sideways. I don't claim or point fingers or call anyone a false prophet, but you do it to yourself. If you follow the pattern, if you fall into this pattern of there's some other way that I can tell you that you can know God's will or get a closer relationship with God outside of the Bible, I'm not pointing this finger at one man specific. Generally, that is a false prophet. That is a clinical definition in 2 Peter of a false prophet. What gets worse is this speaker went on to speak at another national camp using another book by Levi Lesko called I Declare War, Four Keys to Winning the Battle with Yourself. Oh, good gracious. I mean, it's just this new age spiritualism, you know, it's, uh, the, uh, I, I, I don't even know what to say. And so I, I was thinking, well, when he goes to this camp and he pulls this again, those guys are going to roast him. They didn't. They patted him on the back, told him how great it was, and they drank the Kool-Aid, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. That shocked me. What shocked me most was not that a preacher preached the sermon, not even that in our circles of association it, this stuff was accepted. What shocked me was the backlash toward me in our church. That's really what Now, I've been in this a long time. Nothing shocks me anymore. That one about kind of got me, and, and the other churches who were at that camp. And the main criticism was not of his preaching. They were defending their buddy. Well, we know, but that's, but that's what he said. He might not have meant it. Well, he did mean it, but that's what he said. They said, well, you should have taken him aside and warned him first. No, we're not disciplining a church member here. This is a guy in a pulpit preaching false doctrine. He's got to get out now. There is none of that. And so I sat down and actually borrowed this book, and I sat down because I wasn't going to pay for it. It wasn't getting my money. So I borrowed it and made the circles. I think Matt's dad read it, and I got it, and so it worked itself around. And so I want to I reference this book for you tonight, and uh, I'll let you decide. I took some excerpts. We're not going to read the whole book. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep you here to midnight reading, but it's a short 200-page book, and you decide. And this is what we have to be good at. Uh, you know, James says we ought to be experts in heavenly wisdom. We need to be experts at this stuff. So that when we sit down and read this book, or we have a friend that says, hey, I found this book, man, we ought to be ready to go on these things. This stuff is dangerous. New revelation is dangerous, and people are eating it up. And so when I read you these excerpts, you decide, does this man hold to the supremacy of Scripture based on open biblical truth, or does he preach God's will as some hidden message does the author create a problem in which he has the solution? 
Or does any preacher or teacher that you encounter, do they hold to the supremacy of Scripture? Or is there always the conjunction? Quote a Bible verse, but, and then they go going to explain. Quote a Bible, well, however. I mean, you need to be up on this stuff. We all do. And so let me read you some of these excerpts from this book. Uh, I think it's in your packet there. I've given you some notes. Page one and two. We'll skim through this very quickly. From page one and into two. It is possible that, hang on. You remember what I told you about a false prophet? What do they do? They create a problem. They create a crisis. Then they appoint blame. And then they are the solution. Right? Keep that in mind. Is it possible that what we perceive to be a relational, emotional, and spiritual problems are actually hearing problems? This is page one. He's already started. Ears that have been deafened to the voice of God, and it's the inability to hear his voice that causes us to lose our voice and to lose our way. I don't even know what it means. I don't even understand it, but that's what he wrote. He said, so let me make a bold statement at the beginning of this book. Learning how to hear the voice of God is the solution to a thousand problems. It is also the key to discovering our destiny and fulfilling our potential. I mean, anybody with any grain of salt and any knowledge in the Bible would shut that book and throw it in the garbage from that statement right there. His voice of love, power, healing, wisdom, and joy. If your life is off-key, maybe it's because you've been deafened by the negative self-talk that doesn't let God get a word in edgewise. Don't ask me to explain it. I'm just reading it. Page 2. Is God's voice the loudest voice in your life? That's the question. If the answer is no, that's the problem. Now, we really don't even know what he's saying yet. See how slick it is? Could you say that's true to some point? If you let me define these terms, <laughs> I could say yes, but we don't know. Um, he goes into page eight. Juxtapose that with this. Juxtapose me, just let's take an example. Let's set a story beside what he just said and let's look at it. So he looks at uh, Elijah going up on the mountain. Then a great and powerful wind tore, through the, uh, tore, the, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. The ESV calls it low whisper. NASB calls it a gentle blowing wind or breeze. The KJV calls it a still small voice. He goes on to say, We tend to dismiss as insignificant the natural phenomena that preceded the whisper because he was not in them. But I bet that Elijah that got Elijah's attention. God has an outside voice, and he's not afraid to use it. But when God wants to be heard... When what he says has, uh, what he has to say is important to us, is too important for us to miss, he often speaks in a whisper just above the absolute threshold of hearing. I don't know. I'm just reading it to you. What's he doing? You can speak back. What is he doing? Can you see what he's doing? You ever heard of a straw man? What's a straw man? You're going to set up an argument or a case that you can easily knock over. That's, he, he's setting his whole shtick up here. He, he's using all of this kind of hazy uh, language, like we don't know what he's talking about. It, it sounds okay, but 
we're really not sure what he's saying yet. And so then he says the question, of course, is why and how and when and where. Those questions we'll explore and seek to answer in the pages that follow. Now here's where it gets a little goofy, uh, just in page 9. Whispering is typically employed for the sake of secrecy. No form of communication is more intimate, and it seems to be God's preferred method. Can you tell me anywhere in the Bible that is found that God communicates to us through a whisper? Pages 11 and 12. Nothing has the potential to change your life like the whisper of God. What has he not talked about yet, really? <laughs> yeah, the Bible. And, and he doesn't. So we would say nothing has the potential to change your, uh, change your life like the Word of God. He says the whisper of God. Nothing will determine your destiny more than the ability to hear his still small voice. That's how you discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, through, his, through a whisper. That's how you seize, see and seize divine appointments. That's how you, uh, or that's how God sized dreams or birth. You know, it's all about our dreams, isn't it? And that's how miracles happen. Page 21. The four words spoken by God in the beginning are still creating galaxies at the outer edges of the universe in four ones. Uh, that does, I just put that in there because you know what a site reference is? Wikipedia. Uh, uh, now, it, uh, do you know anything about Wikipedia? They're not really the, the bastion of truth and honesty. And he makes a statement here that no one can prove and, and there's nothing. It's just a reference he gets off the Internet. But he's setting up his argument. Page 22, the voice of God is all-powerful. That's, that's only half the story. His voice is also all-loving. In the pages that follow, we'll explore seven languages of God. The first language is Scripture, and it's pretty good, right? It's the Rosetta Stone, so it's not bad. But the other six languages we'll look at are secondary languages, desires, doors, dreams, prompting, people, and pain. And all of these are love languages. Now, and he, then he says why. Now, um, why? Because God is love. People kid me at my church because they say that my spiritual gift is not mercy. I really could care less about people's feelings and their dreams. I, I really don't. There's right, there's wrong, there's black, there's white. That's just the way I'm. Our associate pastor is not wired that way. That's why we work so good together. He is full up with mercy. I am not. And so usually we have to fix each other's problems, you know, when we come behind. But there is either right and there's wrong. There's the scripture. It is holy or it is not. It is set aside solely or it is not. And he said there are six secondary languages that you can know God, which he, remember he's setting up. Page 23, the famous composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein believed that the best translation of Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew in Genesis 1 was not that God said, but God sang. I just thought it was funny because now he's taking Leonard Bernstein for Hebrew expert. Page 25 and 26, why do you think he does that though? It's kind of weird. Why do you think he does it? Why do you think he says Leonard Bernstein? Why? Because most people would know who Leonard, if you don't know anything, he's a music composer. And he's well known, so let me name drop here. 25 and 26, does God speak audibly? Absolutely. 
but that's a thin slice of his vocal range. His ability to speak is way beyond our ability to hear audibly. That sentence makes absolutely no sense. Does he speak audibly? Yes. Can we hear him? No. Just as there are people who claim they've never experienced a miracle. What happens, the second thing, what happens with a false prophet? What does he do? Remember, he creates a crisis. Then what does he do? Yeah, it's, it's you people. <laughs> I've got it. Y'all people are the problem. Look what he says. Just as there are people who claim they've never experienced a miracle, there are people who argue that they've never heard the voice of God. I've been pastoring for a long time. I have never heard the voice of God. I just have not. Can I look at creation? Yes. Have I been impressed upon my heart? Yes. Have I been convicted and broken? Yes. Has he appeared to me and we've had this audibly verbal conversation? No. How does he speak to us? Through his word. That's all that he said everything he wants to say. That's it. Even though you can't hear this voice, still makes no sense. So there are people who argue they've never heard. I would argue otherwise. That may be true of his audible voice, but within our small range of hearing, uh, but everything we see was structured by his acoustic oscillations. <laughs> it's back and forth, isn't it? It's just he says one thing, he contradicts it, and, then, and you're thinking, what is he saying? Page 27 and 28, he references a psalm here. 29, the voice of the Lord is powerful. One translation, he says, the voice of the Lord is fitted to our strength. In other words, it is custom fitted to the unique strength of each and every person. Translation, God speaks your language. There is a theory in organizational development called appreciative inquiry that I subscribe to as a leader and a parent. Instead of exclusively focusing on what's wrong and trying to fix it, I identify with what is right and try to replicate it. I wish my father would have known that growing up because he had no problem uh, pointing out what was wrong and correcting it. <clears throat> Appreciative inquiry is playing to people's strengths. It's catching people doing things right. It's celebrating what you want to see more of, and it's bragging about people behind their backs. I'm certainly not suggesting that God doesn't convict us of our sin. He does, but I call it sin inquiry. Uh, or you can call it sin inquiry if you want. That's what he calls it. Then what's the next word? But. See, there's a conjunction. I always tell my folks in the Bible, the greatest word in the Bible is but, and the worst word in the Bible is but. But. He also pulls out our potential, uh, pulls out, uh, pulls our potential out of us via appreciative inquiry. Why? Because he's the one who gave it to us in the first place. How? By speaking to our strengths. Let's don't talk about sin. That's what he said, wasn't it? Let's, 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 let's don't talk about that. 28. He goes on to say in part two of this book, we're going to explore seven of God's love languages. But it's not an exhaustive list by any means. I don't even include the language of nature, which is general revelation, which is pretty big. But let's don't talk about that. Which means like a sin of omission. The reality, God speaks billions of dialects, including yours. Now, here's where it really gets wacky, if you can even say that. I recently met, uh, what else? Remember I said people then take their beliefs from personal experiences and anecdotes. What does he do? 
I recently met an Indian pediatrician who attends our church and who grew up, grew up in a Hindu family. She told me that she put her faith in Jesus Christ while reading a book called I Am a Hindu. That, it may be one of the most heretical things. I, you can find Jesus in reading the book I Am a Hindu. I don't know if there's another person on the planet who found Jesus this way. I'd probably say no, and neither did she, is this woman. But it's a testament to the God who speaks our unique language. What did he just say there? The Bible is good, but what? Do what? What you hear? Where can you hear it? Now you can hear it in a, in a book about a Hindu. You can hear it anywhere. Uh, the other day I was walking through the church. I don't know if I'm going to say this or not, but every time I took it, there were some birds out in the foyer, outside foyer. And every time I took a, a step, this bird would squeak. And I stopped and it stopped. And I took another step and the bird squeaked. And then I took another squeak and then I stopped. I mean, that bird squeaked every time I put my foot down. I could say, well, that was God speaking to me. Wherever I was going, that was God's destiny for me. And he's going to fulfill my dream. That's how kooky that it gets when you get off into this. Page 39. Don't use the Bible to box God in. Oh, my Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to get through this without really being too smart-alecky about it. I know there are those who believe that God speaks only through Scripture. It is a, Now, this is buried in page 40, pretty much, right? It is a well-meaning mistake that's often perpetuated by those who hold a high view of Scripture, as I do. I certainly believe that the Bible is in a category by itself, as in the inspired Word of God and the canon closed. What's the next word? But. Why can't you just put a period on it? But we actually undermine Scripture's authority when we discredit God's ability to speak to us now in the same way, uh, same ways He did in the pages of the Bible. And I don't think anything has changed. Jordan is one of my students. There's one thing that's banned in hermeneutics is, well, this is what I think. You don't say, I don't care what you think. You actually really don't care what I think, do you? What we care about is what God is speaking to us and how He communicates to us. This author says that we make a well-meaning mistake when we box God in by using his own words. Page 50. If you want God to do something new, <laughs> you can't keep doing the same old thing. You have to dare to be different, and that includes listening in a new way. That's what learning these seven uh, love languages of God is all about and then he says, let the games begin, which I agree with that, too. It is a big game. Page 67, this is in the context of, um, uh, he says, yes, we should read the Bible. I put the context for you because it's, it's kind of blurry in there. But on page 67, that's pretty much what he gets to. Yes, we hold high view of Scripture. We should read it. And what's that word I put in there for you? However, the goal isn't getting through the Bible. The goal is getting the Bible through to us. I would agree with that. There is a very subtle form of idolatry called bibliolatry. Bibliolatry. I don't even know why he brings this up. It involves treating the Bible as an end in itself instead of a means to an end. The goal of the Bible isn't just Bible knowledge. We'd agree with that. After all, knowledge puffs up. 
The goal is learning to recognize and respond to your Heavenly Father's voice so that you can grow in intimacy with, with Him. I don't know if I disagree with that, but I, I do now that I know what I know about all this. But if your pastor were to tell you that, you'd say, yeah, I agree with that because he's referring to the Bible. And then he goes on, he says, I have a little formula that I share quite frequently. Now, his office is above a coffee shop in their church. So he says, here's the formula. The Holy Spirit plus caffeine equals awesome. I don't even know what it means, but that's what he said. And then he says, Holy Scripture minus Holy Spirit is bibliolatry. Well, th those two things don't even go together. I would expect you to say, okay, the Holy Spirit plus the Holy Scripture. Okay, that's awesome, but he doesn't use that. He says caffeine, and then he goes to the negative. And then he's talking about, uh, look at, you see how subtle he's twisting it? He's calling you what? An idolater. That if you hold to the supremacy of Scripture, and that is your sole, that is your sole source of your faith and your practice, you're an idol worshiper. He does it very subtly, and people really don't even recognize what he's doing. They're just blah, 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 just eating it up. It just sounds good, this whisper. I want to get to this whisper. Page 80. Here's the aha buried right in the middle of this 200-page book. When I was in seminary, there was a distinct moment when I felt called to write. I was praying in the chapel when the still, small voice whispered, Mark, this is the author, I've called you to be the voice of your generation. When I read that, I'm like, okay, now I know. And the book costs $6.99 or whatever. Right. What does the false prophet do? What does he say? The third thing he says, I have the answer. I'm the voice of the generation. The Bible's good. Don't, <laughs> don't mistake what we're saying. But I'm the voice of the generation. And then you can read the back cover. I'm not going to waste your time with that one. Uh, it just tells you what other people who ride in these circles think. This was taught to our children at an ABA youth camp. We may think this exists outside of our circles. It is running rampant in our Baptistic, conservative ABA Baptistic circles, and people are eating it up with a spoon. Why? Why? Because it's hard work to read and study. It's weary to the flesh, and it takes time, and it's not exciting, and it's it's, it's not this emotional high that everyone is looking for today. I, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to go and get my emotional fix and at this place. And, 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 and if God can tell me what to do outside of the Bible, then why wouldn't I do that? Well, that's what the book is saying. See the danger of it? You ought to be able to pick it out like that. You ought to keep those three steps. Are they creating a problem that is not there? Let me tell you, there is no problem. God speaks quite clearly. He wrote what he said. He said what he meant. There is no problem in that area. Then the second thing they do, are they really blaming church? Are they blaming conservative? Is it those Baptists? Baptists just don't understand. Are they creating enemies? And then are they the solution? I'm telling you, you see that. You throw that book in the trash, you warp it, you, you get away from it. It will actually conceal the will of God for your life. You will never know God in an intimate way without his word. Have I said that clear enough uh, uh, so far? It is only through his word. 
He has communicated to us through His Word everything we need to know. Has He told us everything that God knows? Well, of course not. He's told us everything we need to know. Read out. What else do we need to know? I've, and like your pastor and many of you, we've studied this book for a long. Is there something else in here that we need to know that He didn't tell us? No. Because what's the real problem? We're sinners. It's our fault. And Jesus Christ is the answer. Do we really need to know anything else outside of that? No. Pretty much just how to live. Now, these false prophets will often jump to Moses, Elijah, some Old Testament prophet, Abraham, somebody who made the earth stop spinning or called fire down from heaven, whatever it was, uh, and did these great things to kind of compare themselves. It's what this guy does. Let's take Elijah. Let's juxtapose Elijah. Well, I say that's not really probably the thing we ought to do. We ought to juxtapose someone like Nehemiah. And so I'm going to spend just a few minutes preaching here and closing up with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a priest. And if you want to go to Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll breeze through this. Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a priest. Uh, What was he? He held a secular job. He was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, a Persian ruler, a king. A man who did God's will without the prompting of dreams, visions, or voices, or burning bushes, or anything like that. He was a man just like us. He was a man that held a secular job, doing his thing, And he asked a question. And the question he asked to get the book started, how are the people in Jerusalem? How is the city doing? The answer that he got, it's not good, Nehemiah. The walls are torn down, the gates are burned, and the people are in great distress. So how did Nehemiah know what to do? Did he get a whisper? Did he go sit out and meditate until it came? You know, the Bible tells us Nehemiah prayed and he fasted. And Nehemiah, after a time of praying and fasting, did you know he referenced the word of God as to what to do concerning Jerusalem and the temple and the gates and the walls? When he found out, he fasted and prayed. And you can just note this in. I didn't print it out for you, but Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. He says this. Listen to this very closely, what he said. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. After all this time of praying and fasting, heard the bad news in Jerusalem. Here's what this man, just like you and I, uh, going about his job, look what he said. Remember the word. I like that, don't you? Chapter 1, verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. What's happened? The people of Jerusalem and Judah and the southern tribe, just like the northern, they were unfaithful. What did God do? He scattered them, sent them into captivity. But then Nehemiah quotes the Bible, what would consider, he would consider his Bible the scriptures. He'd go in verse 9, chapter 1. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. What was Nehemiah's source? The Word of God, Scripture. He went to what we would say, get your Bible and let's figure out what God has said. Why is God going to say this again? He's already said it. He's already told them that when you see drought, when you see pestilence, when you see bad things happening to your country, have no doubt about it, it is your idolatry. I'm not going to appear to you again. I'm not going to come to you and whisper a dream of boy. That's it. I've written it down. And Nehemiah 
knew this. He read this and he discovered. So under the leadership of Nehemiah, those workers completed building the wall and hanging the gates around the city of Jerusalem in 52 days, what could not be done in 150 years. And that's what I want to focus on for the time we have left. When the workers completed the wall around Jerusalem and after they hung, their, hung the gates, what did they do? What did those people do? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. You know what they did? The first thing they did, they asked for the word of God. Chapter 8, verse 1, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. That was verse 2, verse 3. And he read it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. How did God display himself that day? After this great accomplishment of building this wall in 52 days, even the enemy said God had to do that because those bunch of refugees couldn't have done it. So we know God did that. And then how did God display his power? Not by a miracle, not by some hysterical revelation, not by a voice, not by a whisper. He didn't magically impart the word into a mass of people while they sat in a coffee shop or in a field somewhere contemplating the universe. His power was displayed by reading the word of God. That's what they called for. Go get the preacher and tell him to bring his Bible. We want to know what God has to say. The people called for Ezra. Now, don't think they just magically got all whipped up and said, oh, let's read the Bible when they saw this. Think about it. If you know the timeline, Ezra has been teaching these people for at least 15 years. Ezra's been there day in and day out preaching them the Word of God for 15 years. He hasn't been a social warrior pastor. He hasn't been preaching, let's all do life together, and let's uh, discover the other languages that God speaks. He's been preaching the Word of God to these people for 15 years. And when they saw the wall, something clicked right then, and they said, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Where's Nehemiah? Tell him to get his Bible and get back here. Nehemiah had been teaching them what God expected from his people, the type of people they were to be. They were to be sanctified people, holy people living in a holy city. And they wanted to know God's will for their life at that point. Verse 3, they gathered to hear the word early morning to midday. We have a church in our community. Their slogan is we can get you in and out in about 30 minutes of worship. Churches today openly brag about their brevity in the Word of God. Why? Because there's six other ways. Or you can read a book from Hindu or whatever, you know, and, and find out the same stuff. So why waste our time? See, what it, see how dangerous it is? And then in verse 3, it said the people were attentive. Literally, the ears of the people were turned toward the book of the law. That's what it says there. Their ears were turned. They didn't just stand there tapping their watch, hoping to beat the Methodist to the Western Sizzling. Uh, and, and get out before noon. They stood there attentive with their ears to what? The Word of God. What happens next? Verses 4 through 8. So they called for the Word of God, and then they placed the Word of God in the center. Very symbolic imagery here. They put the Word of God in the center of their life, the center of their city, the center of their tribes. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium above the people. Nehemiah's just kind of gone now, isn't he? The wall builder's out of the picture. Uh, I mean, he's not out of the picture, but looks what takes prominent place. Ezra opened the Bible inside of the people, or the book inside of the people, and all the people stood up. Verse 5, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, true, true. 
while lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, what does it say? Explain the law to the people. While the people remained in their place, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they would understand, so that they understood. Were they seeking a whisper? Were they seeking some other way for God to communicate? The answer is no. And when Nehemiah gets up in the pulpit, what does he do? He preaches. And he preaches the word of God. He doesn't brag about his years of service. He doesn't hog the pulpit with personal stories and dear stories and jokes and all this other nonsense. He's not rushing through his sermon. He doesn't claim to be a voice for his generation. He is preaching the word of God to these people. He doesn't call for Nehemiah to come up and receive a reward for an award or a plaque for building the wall. It said that Ezra blessed the Lord and the people said, true. The Levites didn't say, hey, you want to know what God's will for your life? Let's go sit out in a cow pasture and it'll come to us. The Levites explained and taught the word of God. It's a great pattern, isn't it? Really is. It's remarkable how simple the Bible is. The third thing. Remember what I said about the guy that said, uh, let's don't worry about sin, let's just focus on the good. What happens here? They recognize their sin in the next verses, and their sin and their mourning of that turns to celebration. Let me breeze through it, verse 9 of chapter 8. Uh, so Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy. To the Lord your God, do not mourn and weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweets, and portions of him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people. They said, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood... They understood the words which had been made known to them. They understood the word of God. See, many of these people had been raised in Babylon or Persian culture, and they may probably were not familiar with the law of Moses or even the language. And so when the law is being read, the Levites are going through teaching and translating to, the, to them what the Bible or what the word of God is saying. And it said they finally understood they understood the reason that their city was destroyed 150 years ago. They understood the reason they spent 70 years in captivity. They finally understood the reason the temple was destroyed. They finally understood the reason that in Nehemiah's day, they're still living in shame and in shambles and in defeat. The reason is their sin. And it goes on to say their sin and the sin of our forefathers. That is rebellion, idolatry, disobedience, and all the other transgression. See, when the Bible was taught to them, they understood their sin. They didn't overlook it and ignore it. And let's say, well, let's don't talk about that. Let's just talk about how good y'all all look. They talked about sin, and when they understood sin, it broke their heart. They were mourning so loudly that the, the preachers had to calm everybody down. No one here that I can find says, turn off your negative voice and focus on the good stuff. It's actually the opposite. They wept and were broken over their sin. In the context of that verse that you may have quoted quite a lot, the joy of the Lord is your strength, 
the joy of the Lord is your strength is in the context of acknowledging sin. When you acknowledge your sin, you begin to understand a whole lot of things. Weeping and mourning so overt over this. And the Levite said basically this, be still, don't be grieved, go out and live your life. Now that you understand, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet. You, you'll know what to do now. You, you'll be fine. Go invite your neighbor, bring them, go on and live your life. You understand. Wish we had time, we'd just preach that whole book. So we began with this question, why are people so eager to seek this new revelation from God? Why is it so popular? Why does it carry so much momentum? Why are these books selling out by the droves where people are erroneously taught that there is a problem in the will of God? The problem is the will of God is a mystery and God has it hidden from you. Someone who has to help you get it revealed outside of the Bible. You finish reading Nehemiah, those people had no trouble knowing the will of God. They had trouble carrying it out by the end, but they had no trouble knowing the will of God. And that's why these books, and it's why this belief of a new revelation is so prevalent. The word of God is just one of many other things that can reveal God's will to you, but it doesn't. Now I said, I'm going to answer the question for you, what is God's will for your life? And it's going to answer the other question about new revelation. And here it is. Are you ready? I think I put a blank for you in your notes, didn't I? You know what the will of God for you is? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. People ask me all the time, so Brother Joy, I'm just trying to figure out what God's will for me. I thought, oh, that's easy. I got that for you. You do? Well, tell me. That's your sanctification. No, 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 Brother Joy, you don't understand. No, 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 you don't understand what I'm talking about. I, I, no, I do understand. That's it. You could really sum up all the New Testament imperative or commands with that simple statement. That is God's will for your life, is your sanctification. Now that really kills book sales, doesn't it? It's not very popular. What is saying? If you go on to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks about sin, getting rid of sin, identifying sin, getting sin out of your life. That is God's will. See, we think God needs to uh, determine, are we going to eat a cheeseburger today or a chicken sandwich? Are we going to buy a red car or a blue car? I, no, no, no. God gives us, through the study of his word, we put that, preface that, through the study of his word, we gain knowledge and wisdom. We get the principles and precepts on how to operate. Uh, the Bible is not a troubleshooting guide where we turn to page four, scroll over to this column, cross-reference, and we find our problem and check. We get it. That's not how it works. Sometimes I wish it did, but that's not how it works. And so we are to be experts in heavenly wisdom so that when we, when we encounter these things in life, that we know what to do by the guiding of his word and the conviction of our heart. But that can be summed up. That really, I think, sums up. It didn't, I don't think that is what sums up our life. And when people say, no, no, Brother Joe, you don't understand. Yes, I do understand. You just don't want to do it. You don't want to clean out your life of sin. You don't want to get rid of your little idols. You don't want to get rid of your hidden sins. Uh, I, 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 I don't, what I've ran into a lot here lately, I've just been shocked of uh, how pornography is per pervasive among Christian people today, men and women. 
and you come and say, well, I want to know what God's will for my life is. Get rid of that junk. Well, no, 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 you know, I want to know what to do. That is the answer. Clean it up. But see, we don't want that, do we? We like to hold on to our sin because it's not breaking our hearts. And then we want to do something for God. It doesn't work that way. When we set sanctification as our goal, by the way, that's what Nehemiah was. You know what they're trying to do? What it's saying, chapter 1, we want God to dwell among us. Well, you know how God's going to dwell among those people? Clean this mess up. Clean up this city. Clean up that temple. Get Tobiah out of there. Throw his big screen TV in his recliner. Get him out. A man was living in the temple. Get him out of there. Clean this city up. Put my word in the center. Then I'll dwell among my people. It works the same way in our personal life. You do that, I guarantee you know God's will. When that decision or those opportunities come up, you'll know. You'll know. You don't need some voice off in the wilderness somewhere. And see, that is the danger of new revelation. It takes you away from his word, and his word is the only way to know his will. Read the New Testament. It really is a summation of our sanctification. All that God has revealed is revealed in his word. Hebrews 1.1 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, in the last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through he also made the world. Everything we need to know is in the word of God. Jesus has given it to us. We read it. That's not our issue. Our issue is our sin. You know, I, I, I know this from preaching. You take the pulpit on Sundays and you've done all your academic work and you think you're going to wow them and women and children will be crying in the pulpit. Men are going to be turning their life over and you preach this great sermon that you constructed out of your brilliant mind. And it goes right out of the pulpit onto the floor and it's bullfrogs and crickets is all you hear. You know why? Because there's something wrong in your life, the pastor's life, the preacher's life. You know, your pastor, every week before he preaches, you know he has to do his best to clean his own life up, to make sure that he is in alignment with that word or it goes nowhere. It's a, it's a tremendous burden. Wouldn't it be easier just to do something else? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be easier just to set this aside and let me speak to you? You know why? You know why this author doesn't want to deal with it? He doesn't want to deal with his own sin. And when you fill the pulpit like Ezra, you've got to get straight to the Word of God. And that's the way it works. The danger of new revelation is this. I'll say it one more time in closing. It takes you away from the Word of God. And the Word of God is how you know the will of God. There is no other way. He has spoken to us through His Son, in these days, the creator of the universe, and that is it. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for this time together. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray that everything I've said would, would fade away, that my voice would fall to the ground. And Lord, as we study your word, that you would just impress on our hearts and convict our hearts through the reading of your word, uh, that we uh, take a, a personal conviction and responsibility for our own life. And that we know that knowing your will is not a mystery. It is the sanctification. We are to be a holy people set apart to carry out your will. And the Bible tells us those steps. So Lord, we, we pray that your words will get through. We pray that your word will speak loudly as you had given it to us and not in any other form or way that we, we know you through the study of your word. And so I pray that that is what is left on our hearts tonight. We ask and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.